up and welcome to the Temple of Blair. This is a conversation with one John Tucker. Now, John is an author. He wrote a book called Neat and Tidy, The Story of Neat Records. And as such, I took a particular interest in his work as I'm really interested in exploring those relationships in the early 80s between Roadrunner, Neat, some of the UK outfits which Roadrunner licensed from and vice versa. And uh, John's the man for it. So this one is very much like a meander, really, between Roadrunner, Neat, and Guardian Records, obviously because of the documentary. Guardian is having a special uh, a special chapter, if you will, in terms of the Temple of Blit output over the next few months. So I wanted to see if we could try and piece together some theories as to how the network of metal labels at the time operated. Now, in terms of housekeeping, I will often refer to David Wood as Dave Woods, or David Woods, or Davey Wood, or whatever. David Wood is the academically sound way of saying his name. This is probably one of the curses of having a, like a relatively common UK-oriented name. You tend to sort of accidentally nickname it. But David Wood from here on out is the correct way to say it. And I do intend on upholding that particular standard from now on. You want to do yourself a favour and check out Neat and Tidy because it's an academically robust assessment of Neat Records. It's It's... As John was saying in this chat, um, he's only satisfied with a particular piece of information if there are three sufficient sources, incredible sources, to support a particular theory or happening or whatever. So he's a man after my own heart in that regard. Uh, John also has a, a podcast called Heavier, Faster, Louder on Neat Records, which started last year. And I'll put links to all that stuff in the description. One, two, fuck shit up. Thanks again for, for taking the time. And usually I, I send questions beforehand and I have like a through line that's A to B. But with yourself and from our previous conversations, I was like, I kind of want to talk about everything and I kind of just want to be a bit loosey-goosey around your expertise because you wrote the fucking book on it. So I was like, it'd be disingenuous for me to try and go, well, let's just pick these things out. Because I was thinking, well, you know what my kind of priority is but I think I need to understand to understand the Roadrunner and Guardian element. I also need to understand the neat bit because it's too big, you know, <laughs> comparatively. So I, I kind of wanted to figure. I thought a jump through there would work. Let's jog. Let's 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 do it, man. So let's start. Let's start with the book anyway, because as you see, I've been taking notes and making making certain um, uh, references to my for my own research. But the thing mm -hmm. is you've got academic sensibilities which are similar to mine because it's, it's fucking dense and it's correctly cited as well. And I'm like, as, as a, as someone of that world, I'm like, yes. <laughs> that's, 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 that is the way to do it, isn't it? I mean, it, it should be, these things should be a correct, be academic, but see fun to read as well. Mm. Yeah, completely. So what is it that drove you to write about neat? I've always wanted to do it. It's, it is that simple. I, um, I wrote to Neat in 1985, I think it was, and said, you need an in-house magazine. I'm the person to write it. They were back and said, yeah, fine, which surprised me. No, and one of these, you know, 10 or 12 things you throw at the wall and one sticks. So I've always had affinity with them. I always loved the, the output. I've always enjoyed what they've done. Mm. And it was there. All the stuff was here. And I, it needed celebrating, I suppose, at the end of the day. It was yeah. worth celebrating the label and what the label had done in the broader context of the new album. Yeah. No, it, it makes complete sense because it was a similar affinity I had with Roadrunner because that was like my 
generation equivalent. Hmm, um, neat. Cause I was speaking to someone who will remain nameless until the end. We're off the record. Um, when I was talking about, I want to do something on Guardian Road, and they said, I, yeah, there might be a story there, but the big thing is neat in the area. That's the big thing. And then he started going on about how Dave would uh, won the lottery or something like that. I don't know how that story ends, but can you can you give me like a, a setting, a landscape in which neat is sitting? Because it's early, it's late 70s, early 80s. There's not many dedicated metal labels, are there? There's no. Music for Nations, there's Neat. Um, there's Greenwald mm-hmm. in the UK. Are there any others? I'm, I'm trying to... I'm well, Heavy Metal Records. Right, okay. And then Ebony came a bit later, came at the same time as Music for Nations. Music for Nations, that little bit later. But I mean, you, your your unnamed confidant is, is correct in one way. I mean, yeah, Neat was the big one. They had their own studio. David Wood had business acumen. He didn't know about metal. I mean, you had to sell stuff. But right. that's brilliant. But it's the it's the underground stuff that's more important. So to be honest, there is a, there's got to be a story at Garden, or they wouldn't have gone for so long. That's exactly the point, right? Mm. I but and this is something I'll be asking the bands as well. It's like, was it second best to Neat? Did they turn down Neat? Did Neat turn you down? Therefore, you went to Guardian, and then there was a link with Roadrunner, which obviously comes later and comes only to some other bands, not all of them. Um, or is there always oh, something else? Because you know, it's it's it feels too much of a coincidence that Guardian was just on the doorstep, <laughs> and yeah. So you, I guess, I guess, really, a studio's a studio, and nine times out of ten, it's it's what someone recommends or is what someone likes in their own mind. I mean, I know some of the, the more Sunderland bands ended up don't pity me. Mm. Um, I mean, and that's a very interesting question. Why do you use one studio, not another? It must be, there must be a lot of trickle down that that band recorded there, therefore I want to go there. Mm. And, and I mean, Neat had turned it into a very glitzy machine by then. You send the demo, they write to you and say, yeah, it's okay. We probably can't do anything, but we could do this. If you put the money in, you'll be on the label. So they they, they knew what they were doing. Um mm. I, I do get the feeling that sometimes it wasn't an either or. You weren't rejected from Neat to go to to, to, um, to Guardian. It was just personal preference, and that'd be worth teasing out with the bands. Except Satan. Why, why they did that. Satan you, laughed, at, laughed at over the phone. I love, I love that. I mean, yeah. it was always a source of, of major interest to me as to why one of the closest bands to the studios didn't get there. And then... Yeah bloody hell get license back from yeah. the netherlands after is, i mean is this the most ridiculous thing you've heard or not you could assign them there and then yeah for, for context for people listening who don't know what we're talking about we're very much in the early we're very much sort of early 80s trying to unpick the landscapes between roadrunner neat and obviously guardian guardian having four bands which were immediately went to roadrunner through a connection which is well, i have clues on but i haven't got a direct uh source on and satan quite a revered new wave British heavy metal band applied to Neat. I say applied like it's a job, but, you know, pitched themselves to Neat, were laughed at. They then went to Roadrunner, who then licensed it to Neat, even though they were just on the doorstep. So it's, there's an there's an, a weird enigma there. And I quite liked our email exchange where we were trying to th- hypothesize how Case and the gang at Roadrunner picked up on them. Um, again, it, it's still, it's still going to be a mystery unless I can get those guys on the phone. But 
keep plugging away. They're, they're, they've got good stories to tell. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Do you know anything about Terry? Did, did, did Terry Gavigan come up in any of your research while doing the neat stuff? No, no. It was because it was it was independent. It was separate and it wasn't part of the brief at the time, apart from minor overlaps. I, I don't even know where he is. I don't know how I would find him. I've got a clue. I've got a clue now. Good so stuff. Dave King is is the centre of everything, it turns out, on this project. Fine. So Yeah. So I rang him and said, look, I'm doing this Guardian documentary and they're going to tie it in with the Roadrunner. Like the stuff we're doing on Zoom, except in person. It's going to be, he's like, oh, fucking great. Fucking great. By the way, the guy recording our new album, um, he was a junior engineer at Guardian, just by chance. And um, apparently a few years ago, he knew where Terry Gavigan lived. So he literally just went up, like, this must be like 10 years ago or something. Just went up and knocked on the door. And Mrs. Gavigan answers the door, says, oh, you must be looking for Terry. Just follow the hammer noises. And he's like, what the fuck are the hammer noises? All right. So he goes into the garden and he finds a full forge and an anvil and Terry Gavigan hitting away at it, making Zulu spears. That's apparently what he's doing now. He's apparently making like presumably wartime recreational memorabilia or props. Right, right. I haven't been able to pull that thread. I'm not getting any responses, but that's not the point. The, the point is, 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 as as we call it a mystery, he was quite central to this, to this what we're calling an enigmatic, non-neat, non-music yeah. for nations body. And he just dropped off the face of the earth, seemed to have some kind of like Tommy Wiseau wealth um, that's come from where no one can figure out where from. I don't know. It was part of the law, wasn't it? Like it, it is... Where's Terry Gavigan? I heard he retired into a mansion. I heard he went abroad. Blah, 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 blah. But no one knows anything. <laughs> Any of what I've just said is secondhand source. It's nothing, it's nothing good. <laughs> but there's always, you know, no smoke without fire. There's always a truth. There's a germ of truth somewhere. And mm. um, it would be very interesting to know what his life path was. At what point he decided that this didn't work, this wasn't mm. making money, whatever, whatever the mm. ethos was. And, you know, abandon ship and make props or whatever he's doing. <laughs> if I guess make moment. props. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if I do get to the bottom of it, I'll, I'll clue you in, of course. But Please do. Let's talk about the wider spectrum of things. So we listed off all the labels that were happening at that time. One thing that Dave, Dave King mentioned to me is something that I want to run by you because I'm not too, I'm not too sure because I wasn't around and I, there's not a lot of writing detail in this, but there's the new wave of British heavy metal, which conventionally motorhead Saxon made in the law, but there's the Northeast contingent, which is usually what neat propagated very good stuff, typically ignored by the media zeitgeist of the time. Was that true? Is is that something? Did everything live and die by Jeff Barton? I guess is that is the question back then. Uh, there's a load of things to unpick there. I mean, Motorhead certainly had nothing to do with the new wave of British heavy metal. Jeff Barton was a writer at Sounds, but he didn't name it. Mm. The name came from Alan Lewis, the editor. Um, Jeff Barton championed some of it and hated a lot of it, the rest of it. But it, it wasn't ignored as such because you had a chap by name of Mick Middles who um, wrote for Sounds, not his real name. Right. Was it Mick? Oh, Ian Ravensdale, my apologise. Ian Ravensdale, <laughs> who wrote, who was based up in your part of the world. And he he coined this Northeast new wave of British heavy metal. Okay. Tag. 
And he wrote quite a lot in sounds and he kept with it until such time as I think he said Jeff Barton um, moved on to Kerrang. Mm-hmm. Um, and that his doors closed at that point and he, and he, he lost his way into sounds, but he right. wrote quite a bit. He did actually, he, he was the first one to write a major feature on what was happening up there. Um, and he kept on it with gig reports and um, snippets. There was a, a very famous piece about Nate, about Raven in the studio. So right. they were pushing it. You know, it, it wasn't neglected. It was getting a far bigger spotlight than, say, the Midlands was at the time. Mm. Mm. Uh-huh. So there's definitely an emerging scene, though, if it, if, yeah. if it qualified enough for its own northeast new wave of, of British heavy metal. I wonder why a lot of it didn't, I mean, how many of those bands made it come back? I mean, I, I use the word term made it sort of like very loosely because the fact that Battle Axe are still going, I think is kind of testament to, you know, the strength of it. Don't, most musicians don't make money regardless of circumstance, even the most famous ones. So the fact that like Satan are going and Battle Axe are still going and Spartan Warrior are still going is like fine. It's completely, as far as I'm concerned, that's, that's making it, having that mentality at that age and still going out and doing it. But why don't we see Battle Axe up there with Maiden? And why don't we see Spartan Warrior up there with Def Leppard or the, the rest of them? If you could work that out and bottle it, you could make a vast amount of money. And <laughs> who knows who makes it? I mean, there's some brilliant bands there. Spartan Warrior, Battle Axe, brilliant bands. But did they have that little bit of luck that separated them from everyone else? You know, it, it, yeah. There's 101 ways how a band can make it. There's some brilliant bands out there and there's some rubbish bands that sell not just in this genre and every genre that sell vast amounts of records. I think like there's a theory, not a theory. There's like an anecdote I try and use in some of my interviews where I'm talking about. It's usually when I'm talking about A and R and the dark art of A and R, and it's yeah, it's <laughs> I'm an take it, yeah, <laughs> it's take your favorite band in the entire world and then understand that there's ten more that are better than your favorite band, but you'll never hear about them because they're screwed away somewhere and they fell out of the net or they fell through the cracks or whatever it is. And I think this Northeast New Wave British Heavy Metal kind of conglomerate and that rabbit hole is the one shade above being completely forgotten and, and cracked through the net, but just below being lucky enough to, to like make it through, you know, and make a living out of it and be part of like the household names that we, you know, we hold so dear. And it, I think that's why it's so intriguing to me. And that's why the guiding thing is intriguing to me because it's a, it's adjacent to an enigma, which was adjacent to a, a, a proper vehicle for the, for the propagation of the whole thing. It's just like a, it's a weird a rabbit hole and a rabbit hole and a rabbit hole thing. And it's tangentially related to Roadrunner for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why I'm like, it just is so, that's why academically I'm like, it's got to be unpacked. It's got to, even though it's a footnote to the neat story, it's a footnote to the um, Roadrunner story. It's a footnote to metal in general, but it's like, it needs to be, I feel it needs to be unpicked. Yeah, I, see, I don't see it as a footnote. I think all, everything adds to the whole at the end of the day. And yeah, sure. in its own way, Guardian was as important as, as, as neat was for those bands. But if, to, to take your point, if you'd said to Russ Tippins, just mm-hmm. after they laughed at him and put the phone down at neat, and if you said to him in, I don't know, what it was, 30 years time or so, you'll put out a live album recorded on a North American tour. I'm sure he'd have laughed his, laughed his socks off. But yeah. perseverance, it comes around. It's, it's hard work, it's dedication. I think back in those days, a lot of bands expected 
um, deals and instant success and touring support and things like that. Loads of filthy lucre in the pocket. Yeah. I think bands are more realistic now. I think they certainly are. Everyone, a lot of people have wised up to it. I mean, um, especially when I was speaking to a band called Dream Troll. They're like a local band. Like they, they call themselves like a new wave of British heavy metal band, bringing that sound back. And I'm like, it's. I don't think it's. I think it's disin. I use the word disingenuous a lot. I think it's false. I think they elevate the genre too much that it doesn't sound like it. I've had people disagreeing with that, but I'll, I'll send you a link later. But they do everything themselves. They do everything on Bandcamp. They promote their own stuff. And then I asked them the other day, like, are you, are you signed yet? Because it is like, in terms of the music, it's great. And I'm, you know, I'll champion them all day. There's something special there. And I feel like from a developmental point of view, they're ready to kind of like, that I feel like the next steps are going to be super sort of contemporary and, and really accessible. And I, I'm wondering why no one snapped them up. And, guy is quite savvy and just says well no one's really offered us anything except for the vague promise of exposure it's like ah oh, yeah of course you know what the game plan is there is no money to be made the best thing you're going to hope for is someone to fund the vinyls and maybe some u.s distribution right it's got to be that's the state of play but back then it was the deal was the threshold or at least it was the perceived threshold i think on that let's do a comparison of the game plans what so you you alluded to it before in terms of the neat order of business when they took a band on can we expand on that a bit so i'm so even if they didn't like the demo they would allow them to use impulse studios and put something out on neat no advance everything entirely from the band all they've got is the studio time with what was the engineer's name um steve thompson to start with was their producer then uh, Kevin Ridley then uh, Mickey Sweeney engineered hmm. um, Kevin uh, Keith Nichol was the main guy but yeah you put the money up yeah we will press say a thousand singles mm -hmm. um, or come out under our label we will distribute it you'll be able to buy some to sell yourself um, you'll get a very minor royalty on everything we sell mm -hmm. Um, but for a lot of bands and you're struggling, you want to make it, you want to get out there. This was a very different role to what it is now. It was a good deal. It was a way of getting your name out there. You're on a label, a label that people know you're going to be in sounds, you're going to be in Kerrang with a bit of luck. Mm. Um, there's no internet. You can't do this yourself. I'm a great admirer of bands who, who, who do things themselves. Um, yeah. You know, no sponsors, no masters is one of the uh, big festivals says. But you couldn't really do that back then. You didn't have the, the means to actually market and promote yourselves. So something like Neat or Heavy Metal Records, one of the smaller labels, fine. You know, mm. seems like a good deal to me. And you're, you're young, you're enthusiastic, you'll sign anything at the end of the day. Let's be brutally honest. Yeah, I spoke to Wally Van Mittendorp, who was the VP for Roadrunner in the latter days, but he also was very active in like the Dutch indie scene sort of I won't, I won't compartmentalize it because I'll probably get showered out. Um, but he made a good point, which was like, these people are like, they're, they're usually in mining towns looking for a way out. And the way out could be the difference between 70 pounds a week and 72 pounds a week being in a band. Yeah. That, that's enough. Yeah. If you can, if you can hustle it enough, you know, so that could be, that's, and that's the era we're talking about, but did those deals for need, did they scale up? So 
could presumably fucking Raven didn't get the same deal as say Blitzkrieg something like that fucking Blitzkrieg yeah fucking Blitzkrieg yeah I, would, I don't know I should have asked this really I mean Raven did the first the, the 50 quid demo 50 quid for six hours whatever it is yeah um, did that people seem to like it now I think if they thought there was something definitely going on um, then the deal was different now whether the first Raven single was done to that deal or whether um, they'd already had the view to put them out as their first LP. I don't know. Mm. Um, but obviously at some point, David Wood, probably the advice from Steve Thompson had said, you know, these guys, that you know, this could, act. if you're not the first LP, these could be the ones to do it. And of course, Raven, uh, Venom came second. Mm. Mm. So, yeah. So there was a, a palette, there was a scalability on it. Okay. Let me just compare with Roadrunner so we can, we can have like a side-by-side -side comparison. So the typical deal was, and this is where it's reported slightly differently. So it's kind of six to seven albums. That's amazing. Five K advance. Right. Um, it drifted up and down. Like Jaguar got eight or something, I believe, according to Gary Peppard. Um, no guarantee of touring support, but they probably would do it depending on the circumstances because they didn't want to get wrapped into a shit tour like Merciful Fate did with um, Man of War. Um, all publishing it's basically the 360 deal before the 360 deal which is all publishing all ip everything and then a, a, a royalty rate goes to the band um the six to seven album deal was i think this this is where people get lost in it because people like when you read the where satan got signed it's reported in kerrang as a thirty thousand pound deal it's not it's a five thousand pound deal times six yeah, yeah, you know what I mean, but it, it's it's interesting though because and my theory behind that because the deals weren't the deals are per perceived as not great, but if you think about it, a five thousand pound advance isn't too shabby for the time, no. and if it's a shot, then you're probably going to take it. But I'm thinking about it from Case Vessel's perspective because he's got in those early days he was doing it out of his front room, like even those like he wouldn't have thought it, like considering what Rodan it became and the Metal Blade get usually the 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 honor of being the garage. Right, they had the garage okay. record label, but it was oh. in case special from room and he was like 40 at the time. Different oh, tale, yeah. He was an experienced record executive yeah. when he started Roadrunner. Um, but if you think about it, Amsterdam real estate this is the capital of Holland, the capital of, of and it's a, a very obviously at the time a massive import export town. Um, it's very expensive to get the, the brick and mortar over your head. He's got staff, it's not a lot of staff, but you got to pay those wages. And he's signing in 1983 when he's starting. He's signing about 10, 15 bands. So if you think about that, that's fucking 75K out the door. And they're all gambles because he's not a metal. He knows how to sell something, but he doesn't know metal. So it's a, there's a massive gamble going on. So to me, it's just, I wonder why Case didn't think. Like, I know actually Case did sometimes say, oh, that demo you recorded, boys, I'd like to sign you, but I'd like to put the demo out as a record. That happened with Realm, although it didn't happen. That's what that was the proposal. Where do these where do these deals come from? Where where does this? Yeah, I'm just trying because it happens independently of each other, and Very it's, nice it's so. interesting how it, how similar it is. I imagine David wouldn't do six album deals, no. but it's an option after the second. So a six album deal is never a six album deal unless no. those first two do really well. No, it's a stack deal at the end of the day. But it does sound from what you're saying that um, Roadrunner had. Roadrunner was a, let's say, a proper label. Yeah. Whereas 
David Lee, I mean, it, they were banging stuff out and the quality control did start to slip after all. Let's be honest, some of it was a bit patchy. Um, but it sounds like that Roadrunner were actually prepared to be a proper label. I mean, uh, Woodsy would very rarely put out tour support. A lot of small mm. labels didn't. I'm having a conversation with someone at New Renaissance once and they said the same thing. It's not our job for tour support. Our job is to get the records out there. Everyone sees things differently. But from what you're saying, it seems that far more old school music orientated contract from Roadrunner compared to the, you know, was it buy them cheap, uh, buy them yeah. big, like cheap sort of thing that, that a lot of independent British labels were doing. How old was Dave Wood when he started Neat? Um, he's going to be in his, must be at least in his 30s, if not, um, I would say early 40s. Same age as, and did, he, did he have a, well, roughly the same age as Case Vessels. Did he have a background in music? He, he had a music background with a very broad brush approach. And he had all, you know, he basically he had the studio. He bought the studio, um, having got a little bit of experience. And then it was really a matter of, of all these different, almost novelty labels that he put together to launch right. whoever came in. And, you know, as the book says, Neat was just one of it. We always thought Neat was a great label, this cool studio. No, Impulse is a studio with all these labels of which Neat was just one. <laughs> um, the, the one that attracted us. But, you know, Dave knew, David knew how to record bands, um, but really it was throwing things at the wall and seeing what stuck. And all of a sudden, mm. the two very different singles, the Tigers come in. Yeah. And the Tigers start to sell. And, yeah. you know, people who run record labels do like records that sell. Also, they did they did record something at Guardian, did Tigers. They did indeed, the audition tapes. That's it, yeah. Yeah, the audition tapes that came with Hellbound was done at Guardian. And I was always curious to know why, being as they had a relationship with Neat Records that stretched back quite a long ways. You know, they did the, the stuff before they signed to MCA, the demos that took them to MCA. They did yeah, several yeah. demos before. And they knew neat, they knew Impulse quite well. I mean, for an audition tapes process, I thought it was a perfect idea. So, yeah, why did they go to, to Durham? I'm curious about that. Yeah, I've just made a note of it. <laughs> so I have that question, especially given the timing. I mean, one thing, um, I mean, what, I'm 70 hours into all these interviews. I spent a lot of time trivializing Case's life and trying to like boil his output down into three sentences. Same with a guy called Monty Connor who signed like Sepultura and Slipknot right. and all these things and that. And I, can't, I feel really bad for it, to be honest, but it's got to be, I've got to, I've got to communicate it somehow. But I, I spent a lot of time like finding patterns where there are none. Um, for example, Jeff Waters from Annihilator was producing Defiance's first record, was scheduled to produce Sepultura's first record. So I was thinking, right, Roadrunner have clocked onto like a thrash metal factory with Jeff Waters at the helm, blah, 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 blah. Monty's like, no, uh, it was just convenient right. at the time. That's all it was. And like on the day, it was just, all right, he's busy, he's busy, he's not. It was simple as that. It could be a similar. I mean, I'm just saying we've got our expectations, which are like, wouldn't it be cool if there was a relationship with Guardian at the time? But I'm also prepared to go. Impulse was, <laughs> Impulse yeah, was yeah. taken that day. <laughs> it was a working studio. They had to go somewhere and try this new guy out. Yeah, why not? It's, you know, long list. No, no, no. We'll try that one. It's just down the road after all. Mm. So, um, yeah. I mean, as you said, there might be. Sometimes you look for these things, and there's nothing to look for. Yeah. Yeah, but let's compare it to the Guardian deal, which wasn't really a deal. So Guardian records and tapes 
Was it? It wasn't a shop, was it? It sounds it like a shop. I'm aware, no. I don't think it was a shop in any capacity. Oh. So studio-wise, it was someone's front room in yeah. a terraced house in an old colliery house. A colliery? How do you know how to pronounce it? Um, colliery house relief, mate. Yep. <laughs> in, in pity me, I think he knocked the walls through and made it into a studio. That was the business model. His dad was involved in a, an accounting capacity, but it was Terry that was doing the bulk of the business and the heavy lifting. So we have this outfit, which is a record label, but isn't a record label. Some things go out on it, but I don't think they've got a distribution model, nor do I think they pushed it like a record label would. What tends to happen is someone records at Guardian and then it ends up being absorbed by something else. What they did do was they did put out compilations. So I'm my theory is that Terry Gavin's entire thing was he didn't want to do the business side. He was more into engineering. However, when he had these bands coming in, he had a sort of middle-of-the-road operation whereby he'd push it, those bands to other labels and then maybe have points on each record or something like that. And that's, I think, where the Roadrunner link comes in. But I think one of these compilations lands on, I think, a Steel and Chains and a few other ones lands on a few people's desks and and case and various other people say all right i'll have those 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 and those which is unorthodox i don't think it's anything i've heard of before i've heard of labels having imprints within their labels Mm -hmm. and that's kind of the relationship but it's just so far it's just so far is even physically is like how does someone in the netherlands catch wind of this place which is now a sainsbury's that's churning out metal records, which might be commercially viable for him. But I think that's the model that he was operating on. I mean, yes, he did some compilations. Was that, I think that was the deal whereby, you know, the bands paid for the, the compilation. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think he, he, made, he made them chuck in 200 quid, didn't he? To be Standard practice, heavy metal records did it. Nick did it. That was, that was the way it goes. Of course, it was a working studio as well, because a number of bands, you know, went there, paid their money, did their time. And they were out with um, a product. I think Tora Tora recorded there, and, and their single yeah. was, was easily available. I'm guessing distribution would be Pinnacle. I'm guessing they would have picked up with someone like Pinnacle or Bullet. Pinnacle was the, yeah, yeah. From the small ads in Sounds, you know, where you'd actually see these things. Mm, mm, yeah. Because you do see like people with the guy, with the logo, like the guy yeah. in Record and Tapes logo yeah. on the LP. So that I'm just trying to figure out. The hows and the whys, because it's it's very intriguing to me. <laughs> no, and the, the the chasing, the the funny stories, you know, the, the the looking for things, the mysteries that might or might not be there. Yeah. That's half the fun. Yeah, definitely. Just like the ghost. Yes. Yeah. Ter- the Terry Gavigan's ghost that used to sit at the piano. Oh yes, yes, that's right. Yes, we talked about that. Yes. <laughs> Every recording studio needs a ghost. Yeah. Otherwise, it's not a real recording studio. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, let's let's move into. Um, I kind of want to understand the narrative of Neon. And I know it's all in the book, but I want to understand, like, from a high level, what's the downturn? Because I know there's there's Neat as a body, which is a very reliable out. You know, as you said, there's a QC issue as it slips in the early eighties. How long does this last, and when does it? crash because then jess cox resurrects it resurrects it in the late 90s doesn't he yes yeah uh jess comes in 
from memory, um, he'd been doing, he did a media degree. Right. Did, a, did a, a column in a local paper, ended up interviewing Dave and seeing what a mess things were, and then offering to go into partnership and seeing what was there. So Neat um, kind of stopped doing things around the end of the 80s. I mean, some okay. of the latest stuff was purely uh, local bands and realistic they shouldn't have been on neat they should have been on one of the other labels they could have you know created something new for more hip happening things at the 80s end of the 80s yeah um just saw what was there revamped what they had then used it to to relaunch some of the catalog again and make mm -hmm. it obviously put it on cd for the first time yeah which uh, of course was a non-existent thing when when a lot of these bands were were first recording mm -hmm. so Jez gave it a new lease of life for a few years, but I mean, from about, from my point of view, from about, say, 85, 86, neat, uh, neat that was, neat was the, the, the thing you collected, it kind of died a death by then. As you well know, metal was changing dramatically by 85, 86, 87. Mm -hmm. I mean, neat were picking up bands like Artillery, which I think was licensed from Roadrunner. Yeah, by Inheritance was the one, yeah. But, um, Oh no, there was yeah, there was one before that. There was yeah, sorry, it was um Fear of Tomorrow. Fear of Tomorrow, then by inheritance. Fear of Tomorrow was neat, and then by inheritance was right. I, I don't really think uh, for people who didn't really know what was happening metal-wise to start with, I don't really think that once um it started getting split into your kind of American West Coast glammy stuff and uh thrash metal. Mm. I don't think Neat really knew where they were going. And I think they were picking up odd bands here and there, but they needed someone really with dark, someone who, they need someone with, with knowledge of the scene. And that's what they didn't have. They had someone who was good at selling records. Was that the engine? That was, that, that's the Steve Thompson's of the world who uh, yeah. had the ear to the ground, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they, they no longer had this. They, they still had bands, you know, they still had bands doing the rounds. They yeah. had Ice and Dogs who were doing very well. Avenger put out some great, out or two great albums. But it was, I, th I think it just went the way of all things. No empires last forever. Mm. And I think it had run its course. I think it was that simple. Um, and I think Dave still had the studio. He was still, I said, still working with other bands. Other things were still happening. But Neat was no longer his, his primary importance, I guess, his primary interest. It was in the it was the right thing at the right time, certainly, for, for the new over British heavy metal to come along. It was perfectly placed to put yeah, most of yeah. the bands in the northeast on the map. If yeah. only for a few minutes. Which is another reason why Guardian is so intriguing, because the the business model of it of the band will pay for it and etc etc it's the same as guardian and it mm. it's just so strange to me was some wood bands so desperate to get recorded that they'd trade yes. in the opportunity to have that reliable name attached to their you know their band but life was crap especially up in your neck of the woods you know everything was being closed down by the government mm -hmm. you know you had unemployment or the factory or a bit of luck sports or music there were your ways out. Well, two ways out, really, of a, a pretty crappy factory life. So when someone says, I can make you a star, this is doing that second. Yeah, sorry. If someone says, I can make you a star, you know, where's the dotted line? Mm. It's, yeah. It, yes, it is desperation, but you know, bands were making it. And especially in the punk years, 
yeah. you could see that you know a lot of bands made it who face it weren't that talented mm. so why not you know give it a shot these guys look like they know what they're talking about even if they don't you know so I, you know i would sign it i would probably I, as a young as a 20 year old with no life experience whatsoever mm. someone says i could make you you know I, i'll take your your tape i'll stick it on album and you're set and i'd probably be thinking you know next up madison square garden yeah yeah so let's talk about what survived that era then so we're thinking mid 80s that the catalyst was say we're saying glam are we or just a number of it having run its course and a few other things happening to the new mm. british heavy metal which kind of created some of that downturn what survives music for nations survives yeah music um, nation prospered um but then yeah. it did a better deal with metallica megaforce and megaforce you know mega megaforce severed ties after the second album whereas music for nations had them till the third yeah so music for nations again they seem to me and i don't know i might be wrong here but they seem to be a bit like your roadrunner model they seem to be wanting to be an established metal label mm. they survived well roadrunner went from strength to strength it seemed to have a period in the mid 80s when it just seemed to be banging out european thrash metal some of which was not great yeah but then it you know it's it's had some amazing bands and some amazing signings mm. heavy metal records kind of went up its own arse um and it never seemed to be serious is perhaps the wrong word but it seemed to dabble it never seemed to be quite the same league um ebony signed everything it could mm-hmm. and then went bust yeah i mean it's like the second label criminal response and that went bust um mausoleum over in in belgium started to struggle yep. so a lot of these labels just all of a sudden the world was changing and i'm not sure some of these labels could catch up with it but having said that some overstretched some definitely overstretched themselves i think with roadrunner i can speak to its, its longevity with a with a, a degree of, of knowledge because mm-hmm. i think if you look at their catalog the direct signings are there's, there's sometimes there, there's a great some years of expansion of a load of bands you've just never heard of and some there's quite a lot going on but one thing which always happens all the way through to 2012 and it was bought out by warner a licensing arm that's incredibly busy incredibly busy that's where the music for nation link comes in that's where the neat link comes in uh, yeah neat too yeah it, it's just the idea was because it was co-founded by a guy called Jan van der Linden who owned Bertus Record, uh, Bertus Record, Bertus Import Export, and they would be in, in a position to say, "Right, you're getting these records that are coming into the record shops, which are doing really well, and then they're being parallel imported from the source. So you'd have neat records in a shop in Amsterdam, and they thought, all right, well, we'll license it out. So Twisted Sister, Metallica, Slayer, blah blah blah, Corrosion Conformity, anything you'd normally associate with metal was already absorbed by Roadrunner." in that period and they had that brand association as a result and in my head and i don't think this is strictly true i haven't seen any numbers on it but it's almost like the licensing arm kept the lights on and allowed some budget to be freed up to innovate and take risks on other bands that makes sense that makes sense i mean i I think um neat started licensing to roadrunner in 83 yeah um uh, and from the business point of view, I could try and import or try and export to a country, you know, X number of albums and make 
X percent of almost nothing, perhaps. Or I can get a flat fee from a licensing deal, instant cash, mm-hmm. and it saves me all the hassle. So it, it made sense on all angles from, you know, every label was doing it. And it certainly opened up the avenues as far as I'm concerned. It made yeah. life really easy, easy to get stuff in any territory now. American stuff could come into the UK and into Europe. Mm-hmm. The neat stuff went over to Roadrunner, Pony Canyon in Japan. Brilliant. You know, it, it certainly made life in pre-Amazon days a lot easier. Pony Canyon in Japan. Is it Pony Canyon in Japan? I know there's the Far East Metal Syndicate. I know there's that. That was the Roadrunner. That's everything went to Roadrunner. Roadrunner went to the Far East Metal Syndicate. Right. In my head, I'm like, oh, is that the only thing that's in Japan? It can't be. So when you say Pony Canyon, I'm like, oh, is there something I'm else? Sh- I'm sure Neat worked with Pony Canyon. Or we can check that out after the... After the yeah, you know, yeah. Ooh, in- interesting. Interesting yeah. stuff. Pretty sure um, the compilations, I'm sure my copies are on Pony Canyon. Um, what was the most interesting thing you found out about Neat when you were doing the book? Um... I guess I knew a lot of it from what I was yeah. doing beforehand. Um, so there were no great surprises. I mean, I guess there was so much of, you know, everyone thinking that everyone else, they were getting ripped off to fund everybody else. Mm. And it all seemed like, especially the Raven Venom thing. And at the end of the day, when they sat down and talked to each other, they found out they were both in the same boat, but they seemed to be played off. Um, it was interesting to see how Raven how deep their animosity went towards um, Nate, whereas David was very much on the lines of, uh, I couldn't afford any more. Mm. They would, they would, they had what they had. And I mean, then they, he was a businessman. That's, that's his job. Do you find um, yourself empathizing with the label? And more than, because I found that with Roadrunner, because Roadrunner have, a, have a, like a reputation for, ah, uh, these bands got screwed over by Roadrunner. But the more I read about it, the more I empathize with the label trying to do his best. You know what I mean? I, yes, I do. I, I think that, I think sometimes there were unrealistic expectations. I don't think something of neat size could stack a major, you know, support slot. That mm. I'm sure that wasn't their ethos. Their ethos was to get the records out. Now, maybe they should have concentrated, slimmed down, kept some core beasts and kept them on the road. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't what David was used to. David was used to you know, turning things around and putting out singles. you got to remember as well that the precedent that was set by successful metal bands was set by majors. Yeah. A dedicated indie metal labels is still a very emerging thing in the early to mid-80s. Exactly. It's not a coronavirus. Everyone's making it up as you go along, you know. And they've not really, they certainly weren't expecting that degree of success, I don't think. I don't think David thought. Well, John Gallagher says in the book, you know, he started a snowball and ran out of snow. I don't think he knew that this was going to be that big. It was probably, being as Dave liked novelties, probably he thought that, you know, do a few of these and move on to something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I've heard some people say that about Case as well. I don't know. It's, it's difficult. It's difficult to say. For I can't speak for him. Like he seemed like he was in it because he was a, he was a record executive from the fucking sixties. Mm, mm. He'd worked with like acts like QB and the Blizzards and the Barkman Turner Overdrive. Mm. Like he was no joke in terms of his A and R capabilities. Um, but at the same time, the, the company itself was set up as like a gadget dealer. It wasn't necessarily set up as a record label until Jan van der Linden came in and said, "Twisted Sister selling off. You go." How big did Neat get in terms of an operation? How many did you, remember, did you know what the headcount might have been? What in terms of bodies? In terms of body people working there, secretarial or otherwise, or you know, 
who's, who's three? It was always... You had David, you had... Uh, let's be generous. So you had David at the top, he had a secretary, Sue Thompson and Diane afterwards. Um, Steve Thompson was Inez's producer, which became Keith Nicker later on, an engineer in Mickey Sweeney. And in the early days, there was the unfortunately named Russ Conway, who was doing mm-hmm. A&R, who seemed to vanish off the scene fairly quickly. So um, that, at, its, at its maximum, you have five bodies in there, but I never saw more than David, the secretary, and whoever's producing or engineering on the day. Because the, one the legacy implies that it's a much bigger operation. Not much bigger, but say 30, 40 people. That's, that, that's the image. Have you seen the Metal City video or DVD? I saw bits of it. It's available. It's on some on YouTube. But there's, they, they'd stack. At one point, there's an office scene, and they must have got yeah. everyone and their dog in there because it was never like that, you know. I love the fake phone calls on it. It's it's so bad. <laughs> it's, it's a, um, don't do that for God's sake. Don't do that. Yeah. yeah, they're a rough set of lads, but they're really nice. See, ya. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. David had his own office, but would normally sit in the main office, and that was it, really. And that way, they could both keep their eye on the storeroom door before they put a lock on it. <laughs> But it, you know, it was what it was. It was. It, it wasn't meant to be Warner Brothers. It, it couldn't compete yeah. with that. But it need, with a bit of a nudge, and this is the wonders of hindsight. You know, it, it perhaps could have been that little bit more. But I don't think David wanted that. No. It, it would. It would. Have, it would run its course, and then he'd launch another label. Simple as that. I think that was the plan. Yeah. And I think it had much more longevity than he ever, he ever assumed it would. Interesting. That's absolutely fascinating. I know. I guess you could do. I, I, I don't even think it'd be conceivable now. Just like I don't, I don't know. I'm a different different mindset of just going, start a business, run it to the ground, go to the next one. It's just, or just don't get bored. But you know, you've got the end of the day. You've got the studio. The studio is always there. So whether he's doing, you know, the jazz stuff or the folk stuff or whatever, with all these yeah. different labels, there's always someone who wants a recording studio. Even for voiceovers, there's always you know the, the thing was kept working pretty much seven days a week mm. yeah i guess that was it maybe the business model was it's just maybe it was like guardian in a way it's a studio first yeah it's a studio and, first and then whoever comes in and books it bingo yeah and everything the, the actual business side of neat as a as a as a commercial entity and a label that is like an afterthought maybe yeah that's so crazy that's absolutely insane it's completely just, opposite to what i thought when I was, you know, massively buying this stuff in the early 80s. I said, I just thought it was a label with a studio, not a studio with a with number of labels. Yeah. But, so what was so the labels came under it then? So that was the big eye-opener for me, I suppose, this this whole perception that, to turn it around. What did I learn about Neat? I learned that Neat wasn't what I thought it was. Yeah. I wonder if that, I wonder if, who was the guy from uh, Music for Nations again? Martin Hooker. Martin Hooker. I wonder if he knew that. I wonder if Case knew that. I wonder if everyone knew that because it's no. such a big fucking thing is new of British Air Metal. It's so influential in terms of even as we say, they were, you know, they were, they were all kind of diamonds in the rough and not a lot of them made it to a, <clears throat> to a great amount of success. But again, the legacy there, it, it's just, it's, it's so well recorded as a legacy, but as you say, it, it's fucking tiny. I wonder if the other business partners knew that. But, you know how legends, you know, this is how legends are born, I suppose. Yeah. But, That's fascinating. But again, its timing was perfect. You couldn't, you probably couldn't have plucked the date out of the calendar better than getting that Tiger single out in December 79. Mm. 
Was that the kicking off point then in terms of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, then, then, then Fist coming in. This is actually selling. And it's, you know, they're local bands. It's not costing anything really. Yeah. Good studio time. Press it up, puts Guardian in a much different perspective now. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 Guardian now looks more viable next to Neat now that we know what Neat is. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. 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 How incredibly. Yeah. <laughs> Nick's not this massive behemoth. It's just a slightly bigger version with a slightly better studio than Guardian. With more traffic. With traffic, more traffic. Traffic. I mean, I'm being very vague with my wording of traffic, but if you look at back at the old Kerangas and the old sounds, it's Nick's got their fingerprints all over it, but you... Yeah. <laughs> it's just, why wouldn't anything else? I don't, I don't know. It's so, it's so crazy. It's so fucking crazy. You were saying bl- tangent. You were saying about expectations. When one band moaned to me, it said, you know, album's meant to be out, but he's holding on because another album coming. He wants to put two, two on one advert in the magazines. Well, why wouldn't you? You know, an advert is bloody expensive for the national magazine. It's so then that's, that's kind of yeah, your expectations. maybe, the, And that's why the, I, perhaps this affinity for the label, knowing that they were, I think, largely trying to do their best. Yeah. That's fucking crazy. And um, my eyes are being opened. Just how fragile everything is. The scene that was resting on top of uh, the, the, the northeast New Wave British heavy metal scene was concocted by a press design by what was the chap's name who named it again? Ian Ravensdale. Ian Ravensdale. It was Raven. all coming from, yeah, yeah. Yep. And, uh, Jeff Barton didn't name New Wave British heavy metal. Yep. He was instrumental in certain, you know, he likes some bits he didn't like. The threads are, they could have been broken quite easily just by some people not turning up to work, for, I guess, yeah. a few days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's so absolutely insane. None of these things are engineered at the end of the day, well, I suppose bands are now, but then they, this was luck and flying by the seat of your pants. And why did some bands make it and some not? Because some didn't have the luck. Some didn't go to work that day. Yeah. And with Roadmap, my entire ethos on the Roadrunner project is trying to make prove the point that it was by design. Well, at least there was a lot more... Yeah. design and engineering involved as opposed to fluke there was obviously a lot of flukes in there yeah. but there's so many things that were deliberately done it's just blowing my mind mm. it can it makes it obvious now it makes it obvious why roadrunner had the longevity it did mm. because it's like- it had a model at the end of the day it knew i think it knew what it was doing it reacted to the music of the time um yeah bringing thrashing bring other things in sorry dream theater and it knew what was going on yeah where at least it, yeah. it didn't <laughs> that's incredible it's incredible let's 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 take a step back now because i'm trying to because my mind's been blown so much now that i can't i can't find any threads to pull that's fine that's fine <laughs> your record collection is quite impressive oh that's the cds you record the actual vinyls next door i meant records in the generic sense of oh sorry yeah, it's um yeah. it's uh, a work in progress over about 45 years or so <laughs> so yeah there's a lot of it there's a lot of missed school dinners there that started it off you know? <laughs> i was a skinny bugger but i did have a good record collection <laughs> are you thinking of doing any other projects other than, than other than obviously after neat um um at the moment i'm doing some magazine stuff i'm just taking stock as to right. where to go next um i am starting to get a little bit older and a few other things i want to do so yeah if something comes along that i really fancy i might give it a shot um yeah. we did i worked with a woman sarah Eunice, at um, newcastle museums and we did a podcast series last year um what launched it last year 
heavier, faster, louder about neat records. Mm-hmm. We're now doing another podcast on um, the, the, just the Newcastle scene in general, which is new to me because I'm very metal. That's all I know. Mm-hmm. But I do like social history. So once I can actually get a flight and come up, we'll get a bit further forward with that. So that's something a little bit different for me. Yeah. Yeah, the social history part of it is largely the foundation upon which all this rests. Yes, I completely agree with you. I can. Yeah. Otherwise, there's no point. Yeah. Yeah, it's, again, it's just... <laughs> we talk about metal like it's a, it's a it's a voice for the disenfranchised it's a means yeah. with which people can connect to each other yeah yet the infrastructure is built on is so fucking fragile <laughs> it's so then yeah, it's built on us and we are fragile yeah you know people are fragile <laughs> I said, and, and you know chucking lady luck as well and the whole thing is yeah you wouldn't build a bridge like this but let's put it that way <laughs> which was your most colorful interview when doing the neat project um oh there were some great ones um i did like the fist guys that they were they were phenomenally good i would not spoke to them before and i really enjoyed them always enjoyed talking to the guys in satan um and um the guy from white spirit morgan pearson was he was very very open i I enjoyed it and we had to cut his stuff right back because there's an awful lot of it Mm. but um yeah, because a lot of this stuff didn't really translate well out of the Northeast. I went to university and I met a chap from Durham and he said, oh, White Spirit supported Gillen in 1980. And he said, I've seen White Spirit hundreds of times. I'm thinking, White Spirit, God, I'd love to see this band. I come from the South. I've never heard, I've never seen them. Um, so yeah, White Spirit, I enjoyed that. That was, that was a lot of fun. Plus, it's one of these where I did my homework properly so I could tell him things about his band that he'd forgotten. Yeah. And as you well know, the homework is very important. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's it's because like the Roadrun history hasn't been quite as recorded as comprehensively over the years. There's been some surprising ones, like the guy called Steve Ricardo, which was um, he opened the U.S. office. Oh right. And hearing his story was really really fun. I was grinning the entire time. I was like, and with Metal Mike as well, just smiling the entire time because sometimes these huge monolithic bodies which we can revere and try and make an academic subject there were only fleeting moments in the people that contributed yes. to it yeah um yeah. so with steve ricardo he worked at enigma he's a guy who signed poison right. he, had, he has a very sort of storied career in like american metal and he was responsible for opening up the u.s office in new york and he okay. just was like i fucking regret taking that job it was the worst job i ever had i was like what that's insane now that given how revered roadrunner is and i spoke to bob nalbandian the other week who opened up the us the la office there were two offices in the um in the states and you i fucking hated it and i was like what's going on <laughs> why is this why is this happening yes that's, that's very curious isn't it yeah i think it's down to cases management style in terms of how he developed people was he i think i think he'd not necessarily drop them in the deep end but he dropped them into a working label and these 22 year old kids didn't know quite what that meant um and th- back then it, it's it's fax machines and phones it's not yeah 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 i, I wonder how many because obviously we've both experienced bands who feel they were uh, mistreated by the labels usually in a monetary sense i wonder what it would have been like if there was some way to show the books back then yes yeah i bet i bet yeah i mean i bet because now audits aren't hard to do 
Mm. So bands can see straight away how much money have we made, and they'll yeah, go, yeah. "This is it," and this, this is I've shown my working, and this is the entire. Thing. You can even see the mark. You can see how much Spotify streams you've got. You can see what yeah, that yeah, translates yeah. to. But you just didn't have that in those days, so it's it's almost a shame, and it makes you realize how junior the scene and the actual industry is because so much time was probably wasted with the animosity between these bodies and bands and labels because they think they're fucking each other over when really they're probably not and a lot of effort is going into painting that picture and it's only now in the last 10 years or so where they've been able to communicate a bit better and actually have a bit more of a bird's eye view of what's going on and that's sorry go on so I was going to say, I, know, I bet if you know if you're a young band, I bet you think you are selling a lot more records than you probably are, and therefore you must be being screwed over. When yeah. maybe you're just not selling the records. Yeah. You ever read um, David Jokey's book on noise records? No, although I, I have, I've seen it flashed at me on a webcam in, in a similar conversation to this. It's very good. It's very good. The, the point I was going to make was he he creates the office in Berlin, and he takes on people. M- it takes him a PR person more for her personality than her skills. He knows she can do something. And he basically, to take your point about Roadrunner, he basically, on her first day, says, there's your desk, do something. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd have gone home at that point. But yeah, that, that's a good book. That's worth a read. Anyway, that's off target, but it's worth I think. Th- I think it's. I think it's worth, it's a good point though, because I th- and I, there's nothing to support this directly, but from what I can see with people have their relationship with Case, um, they always walk away with a kind of paternal feeling. And these right. are the ones that these are the ones that have been the ones that have been there and had a prosperous career are the ones that really, really respect him. Right. And okay. I, I think it's down to the fact that he's unambiguous in his communication. And he gets that you're 22 and haven't done it before. Right. So he right. is in there to develop it with you. And I think that's, in, in a similar way, it's it's less about what can you do and it's more your personality. Can you be molded? Can you put up with some shit? Because we need to, the actual learning curve is quite aggressive. So just saying, right, off you go, makes sense to me in that context. Yes, yeah. And to be fair, probably he didn't, you know, he didn't actually know himself what he wanted people to do. Just he wanted a PR person, you PR, whatever that means, you know? Yeah. But. But again, that's the nature of this. People make it up as they went along, and that probably makes it a lot more interesting for the rest of us now. Yeah, especially when we're trying to do, especially when we're seeing people trying to administrate metal these days. And I, I say this on the podcast all the time: it's like it's about a knowledge transfer, so we know what to do with it. Because Roadrunner did it best. I mean, it again, see your pants shit. But there's got to be something there that that speaks to the longevity of it. Hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll crack that nut. Indeed, yes, yes. Right, it's been an hour. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad. We, I'm glad I went in with just a. Let's just talk around about. Let's talk around these things because I feel like I've learned a lot now. Jim, it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed this. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you. Take care, now. You too. Have a good rest.